Hello, I'm Dwight Moore, the chair of Arizona End of Life Options. I have the pleasure today of speaking with Robin Zucker, who is a Unitarian Universalist minister in Flagstaff, Arizona. Robin has an extensive background on both coasts with hospice and a consistent Unitarian Universalist minister. Welcome, Robin. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate the time and the uh, thought that you've given to this topic of medical aid and dying. Tell us a little bit about your background so that uh, listeners can get a sense of growing up and what that was like for you. And... Right. Well, I'm, I'm currently a Unitarian Universalist minister. I've been ordained since 2000, but I was raised in a pretty classically modern Jewish home in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I was raised in a Jewish context, uh, was bus mitzvah confirmed. The family was very Jewish. And I, I grew up in a community that was almost exclusively Jewish at the time. So my life was very culturally consistent in a way that I didn't even recognize till I went to college, really. Oh, yeah, I wanted to understand better what culturally consistent meant. Well, you know, a lot of Jewish homes after World War II, sort of in this space between like the Holocaust and the safety of Israel, kind of there was sort of a both religious, cultural and political kind of identity that swirled together. And although we, were, we weren't orthodox, like we didn't keep a kosher kitchen or anything like that. So I'm, you know, I think of myself as a humanist now, a sort of spiritual humanist as a Unitarian Universalist. I think a lot of Jews when I was growing up and also in America today are what I would call humanistic Jews. They, um, you know, they're not observant in an orthodox way, but very culturally, uh, very tribally Jewish. And that's definitely was my childhood and my upbringing and still my core identity. Mm. It's who I am. It's like somebody saying they're Swedish or German or Haitian. It's so deeply in the bone and in the blood. If you will, so I can understand better, make some connections for me here about the link between Judaism and humanism. It isn't so much a link between Judaism and humanism. It's the way you practice your beliefs. I think a lot of Jews today, they're not saying, oh yeah, you know, I follow what's in Leviticus. They say, I take my values and the values of Judaism and I bring them out into the world, just the way, um, you know, tikkun alone, repair the world. I'd say as a UU, I do the same thing. It's sort of the values-based religion uh, that I'm in now and that I serve as a minister in, and I take those values out mm. into the world. They're more uh, practical and humanistic. Mm -hmm. You know, Unitarian Universalism is a very here and now religion. And Judaism has a much stronger tie, of course, to theology in the past. It's an ancient religion. But, you know, I'd say most of my friends who practice Judaism I see how they take it and they use it to do good things in the world. And to me, that's humanist. Mm -hmm. So the, the fundamental concept here is this set of values that you take to the world, you said. Can you give us some idea of a couple of those key values? Well, the values that 
I adhere to now, you know, I look at the Unitarian Universalists or UU for short principles. They're really at the heart, the core of every religion when you strip away the doctrine and you just really look at what they're about. The inherent worth and dignity of individuals, equity, justice, and compassion, the idea of free will and freedom of conscience and the ability to make decisions based on your values and a very this worldly approach. There's, pardon me, no eschatology in Unitarian Universalism. There's no sort of theology of what happens to you after you die and that you're supposed to behave a certain way to get a certain reward after you die. So there's just this incredible embeddedness in how you take your values into your life as you're living it, not for some reward, not to be redeemed in an afterlife. So you're gonna to have to translate the word eschatology for our uh, audience here. Well, eschatology is a word that means a philosophy of the afterlife. Ah, say more and, about that, please. Well, lots of religions, like of course, Christianity has a very strong eschatology, depending on the you know, the version of Christianity you're practicing, it's going to have different ideas. You know, what the Latter-day Saints believe about the afterlife is different than what Presbyterians believe about the afterlife. I mean, I'll let a Christian minister talk to you about that. But I mean, Mormons believe that we are eternally ourselves, like we go on. I would, if I was a Mormon, I would be Robin Landerman Zucker for all eternity, married to a person I married for all eternity. Like that is not an eschatology that I've ever had, you know, and it's certainly not one I have now. And it very much informs my feelings about this is where we need to put our attention. I think you probably touched on this a bit when you talked about the key values of the Unitarian Universalist, but what are your current beliefs about the eschatology that you bring as a minister? I have a sermon called um, Taking It One World at a Time, which is a quote from Henry David Thoreau, who was, you know, a noted transcendentalist and friends with Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of our most famous Unitarian ministers, lived in Concord, where I lived for over 20, for 20 years, mm -hmm. so very familiar with the landscape. And he was once asked, you know, what do you think happens to us after we die? And he said, I'm taking it one world at a time. And I think that absolutely captures the UU view of how we move through life. Like, do I want to die? No. Do I have some idea about what happens to me after I die? Like, I'd like to think of it in a positive way, but I'm not thinking about going to sit at the right hand of a deity that I don't even believe in. With that belief then, Robin, is there fear and trepidation about the next world? I think we're all sort of have some fear and trepidation about how we're going to die. I can't imagine there isn't anyone who's thinking, I don't want that to be a horrible experience. But what happens after you die? I mean, someone once described it. I remember in one of my theology classes in divinity school that we're little droplets. And when we die, we go back to this big pool or this sort of big puddle. It's that puddle is like some universal, beautiful energy you know, then a droplet goes out again, back into the human world. It isn't me that goes out. It's something that's eternal within me that has nothing to do with my personality. Like this person that I am, Robin Landerman Zucker, it's, it's like a vehicle that's carrying 
something greater than a personality through this life. And I'd like to think that eternal peace goes back to something eternal, but am I going to be reincarnated? I, God, I doubt it. I mean, why would I be? Mm-hmm. I think my legacy is lives on in my two children and my grandchildren. I'm in them. My DNA is in them. My values are in them. My uh, influence is in them. So each of us, uh, if uh, this is probably a crude uh, paraphrase, but each of us are a part of a universal whole that's much greater than any one of the parts. But each of our droplets are an important piece, important part of that. Yeah, that's process theology, which was a modern, very modern innovation of people like Henry Nelson Lyman and uh, other people whose names kind of are, uh, sorry, it's been a while. But um, that's an actual area of thought in modern theology, process theology, this droplets merging. When you are ministering, consulting with parishioners who are at the end of life, tell us a little bit about how you approach that, Robin. It's been interesting that even during a pandemic, I haven't had much experience here in Arizona dealing with people at the end of life. You would think that there would have been more of that. But when I was back East, I certainly had many people and I was a hospice chaplain for a while. So I was actually embedded in a environment where every day I was talking to people about end of life. And also my time doing my training at Mass General Hospital, talking to people of different religious backgrounds. So it was different talking to UUs and exclusively mm-hmm. as a minister and talking to mostly Catholics at Mass General Hospital. Yeah. And I think trying to meet people where they are and follow them through that conversation, not argue with them, not tell them they're wrong. Like when folks would say to me, and sometimes even UUs would say this to me, because I think in times of great stress and peril and fear, we can revert back to beliefs that are pretty embedded in us from childhood, religious beliefs in particular. And so the idea, you know, why is God punishing me? I've been a good person kind of approach to dealing with dying was always something I had to very delicately deal with because I didn't believe God was punishing them at all. I I didn't think God had anything to do with it. You know, we live in a fragile, finite, and fallible container as human beings. You know, I joke that we all have an expiration date. We're not as freshness dated as we get older. And it has saddened me that people carry religious beliefs that make them not believe that. Like this sort of aversion almost to believing that you are finite and that you are going to die and how it really keeps you from living a full life because then you hit that wall and it's like how is this happening to me what's happening to you because you're a human being Mm -hmm. so counseling people at end of life i i want them to do as much life review as they want to do to talk about their fear if they have it to talk about what's been wonderful about their life I don't push them to reconcile with people, but if they want to, I encourage that. 
just walk through the valley with them. So it sounds like you really, what you've said is you really start with where they are at rather Absolutely. than some doxology or theology. Let me give you a case study here, a real one that happened to me working with a medical aid and dying patient about a month ago, whose daughter said to him, if you use this medication, dad, you're going to be, you're going to burn in hell for a lifetime and I'll have to pray for you every day. And it really smacked him. It hit him hard to hear her say that. And he asked me how, how to think through this. So what would you do? How would you talk with that man in that situation? I think empathy is underrated, just empathizing with people's experience. Because, you know, you can get so into head and say, well, I don't agree with that. And here's why that's wrong. Mm -hmm. But I think if you start with the empathy of, I'm really sorry you had to hear that from your daughter. I imagine that was difficult. Imagine that makes this experience even harder for you. So I would start with that. Right. And my guess is that would open up a great deal for him at that point. And well, it would create a connection between us because I wouldn't be either agreeing or arguing. I wouldn't sort of get into the weeds. But then I would ask, do you believe those things? And then if he said no, I would say, okay, well, tell me what you do believe about this situation and using medical aid and dying. I want to hear your perspective. Let's put your daughter aside for a moment and just hear how you feel. Does it affect you because you think it's true or does it affect you because it creates dissension with you and someone you love? Like I take an approach of being curious. And if he asked me what I thought happens after you die, I would tell him what mm -hmm. I told you. But I, I think we get into um, either agreeing with or arguing with things way too quickly when people are in distress. Yeah, why do you think that happens? Because we're educated and we're smart and we're also triggered, I think, when we hear things that really conflict with what we believe. Like, I wouldn't like have a knee-jerk reaction to somebody saying that to me, but I would hope I would not start off with that's complete nonsense and BS and a load of rubbish. And I would start with, you sound like you're in distress. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were in Boston, uh, you said Massachusetts General, uh, obviously many of those patients were Catholic or probably many of those patients were Catholic. Uh, 90%, yeah. 90%. Did you take the same approach, that empathic approach that you described, Robin, or was there something different in that culture? I have a sermon I wrote on the 23rd Psalm because I was doing my clinical pastoral education, which is this really 11 week, really intensive, but we would be put on call every 10 days and we would sleep in the hospital and then we, you know, our buzzer would go off and we'd go wherever we needed to go. And I remember this one night, I, my buzzer went off and I went to this woman's room, which was on one of the medical floors. And she was an older woman. She had very bad arthritis, like crippling. And I came in and the first thing she said to me was, I, you seem nice, but I really wanted a priest, dear. Like one of these old Irish ladies that were just so dear gear all over Boston. You know, my landlady was one at one point. And um, I said, well, I'm on call and 
I'm happy to stay and, you know, chat with you for a while and see if I can be helpful. And uh, she asked me to say a novena and I was like, oh my God, I really have to learn how to say a novena at this point. How do I not know how to do that at this point? <laughs> Three weeks. So it was like, note to self, go get one of those cards with St. Jude's novena or whatever. But I said, but we could say the 23rd Psalm. I know that we could do that together. And she said, I've always loved that. Thank you, dear. So we did that and it created connection. Mm. So that's why I was there for training because I had to combat all this desire to tell people, no, you aren't dying of COPD because God hates you. You're dying of COPD because you smoke four packs of cigarettes a day. It's like, do not say it, do not say it, do not say it. <laughs> like find in you like something else and so the training was so helpful and I would often say to people of all different religions how can God be a comfort if they were someone who believed in God which a lot of them were how can God be a comfort to you now uh, how do you envision God walking with you through this experience this hospital is full of good people I, I wish that being a good person was something that made us uh, immune to dying. I mean, these weren't all my ideas. I mean, we would brainstorm together as intern chaplains, like, what do you say to that? And how do you respond to this stuff? And you're looking in, if I'm listening correctly, to points of connection with these mm -hmm. patients who may have a very different theological set of beliefs and experiences, but what are they experiencing and how can you empathize with them? I have another question for you, Robin, about this. And you're probably aware that some Christians believe that medical aid in dying is a sin. So how would you respond to that? Let's say it's a family member of a patient who is thinking about taking medication with the medical aid in dying program. As one, as one of the choices, and the family member has concerns about it. How would you respond to her or him? I would want to hear more. I mean, I just think curiosity is so underrated. Like, tell me where those beliefs come from. Why do you believe that? Is there fear? I would try to get into the emotions. I mean, if they were really strong, like evangelical Christian, I think it would really be hard to like pierce that adherence to that. Mm -hmm. But so I, I want to say, make a general statement that because my perspective is spiritual humanism as a UU, I'm baffled as to how we're allowed to make so many decisions about how we live in our society and we're not allowed to decide how we die. It's baffling to me, really. Like, People can drink and smoke themselves to death, but they can't decide how they die. They can make all sorts of choices in their human life. Like, how is end of life different? So I'm, I'm sort of, I keep hitting that wall of, and it's because of these eschatologies that are so embedded in our traditional religions. You know, the Abrahamic religions in particular, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, there's an eschatology that is implanted in the belief system. So if you're a believer, you are going to have trouble with this. Even if you're 
an evangelical Christian who drinks or smokes themselves to death, you're going to have this eschatology and worry about it. Because if you've been raised to believe that something's a sin, you've been raised to believe something's a sin. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And your core, if I'm, again, listening correctly, is to go back to the fundamental concepts of empathy, is to listen to the story that you're being told, to be non-judgmental, in fact, to uh, embrace somebody's, the word we're using is eschatology, but basically their beliefs about what's going to happen next to them in the next world, rather than judge or adjudicate or point fingers, it's Tell me about that. It's to affirm. It's to embrace. Am I hearing that correctly? I think the idea is not just what happens to us after we die. That's a roadblock is the idea that something is God's will. You know, it's God's will how you die. It's God's will to decide when you die. Unitarian Universalists believe in a loving, benevolent God. It was one of the ways they broke from traditional Christianity, which believed in a more wrathful, punishing God, particularly the Calvinist beliefs. So there were like two strains that came together, you know, the the Calvinist beliefs about original sin, Unitarians didn't believe that, the idea that people were damned or saved before they were even born, Universalists didn't believe that. So there's embedded in our belief system, the idea that God is loving. If we're going to bend towards an image of God, like William Ellery Channing wrote about in something called likeness to God, that that would be bending towards something loving, something benevolent, something forgiving, something that wasn't focused on sin, right? So that's important for you to know that that's where I come from. I don't believe God would want us to die in a painful, awful way if there was another way for us to die. I don't believe that. So I think I would also ask, are you interested in hearing my perspective on this? And they might say yes, and they might say no, but I would ask my younger self, you know, when I was, you know, I started divinity school in 1995, I think I was more, I know I was more brash. I'm not sure I would have asked, do you want to hear my perspective? (laughs) I just would have fire hosed it out there. You know, I don't believe that, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, maybe someone wants to hear that, but I want to know that they want to hear it. It might not be comforting to them to hear that I believe so differently than them. It might blow up something about their belief in God, or it might be like exactly what they need to hear, which is, I believe in a loving God who wants you to have a gentle, easy passage into whatever is next and whatever you believe is next. I do not believe there's a fiery place in hell for people who make this decision. So I would certainly say that. That's a a magnificent summary, I think, of where you come from here in these very difficult end-of-life choices. I want to wrap this up a little bit. Any other thoughts that you have about the discussion of, you obviously are aware here in Arizona, we do not have a medical aid and dying bill in place. We are working hard to try to pass that. Any other thoughts about that issue? I do think it's important to create a coalition of people from different faith backgrounds 
to go before the legislature and express that. I mean, if you look at the websites of like Death with Dignity and Compassion and Choices, you see now a coalition of different religious backgrounds, some that you would never expect to be supporting medical aid and dying. I mean, I'll go back to my perspective that if we're allowed to make all these decisions for better or ill about how we live our life, we should be allowed to decide how it ends. And, you know, I'm glad that more and more states are passing medical aid in dying bills because people deserve that right. Nobody should die a difficult death. I mean, hospice has made an enormous difference in the way people die. And I, I don't even like to think about what life was like before hospice. But having been a hospice chaplain, I see pretty close to medical aid and dying happening already in hospice settings. I mean, the titrating up of morphine, the palliative care measures so people peacefully die, not gasping for breath. You know, I certainly hope that I'm living in a state when this time comes for me that enables me to make that decision with my family. And I feel sad for people whose families make a decision like that difficult so that they can't be united at such a incredibly important moment in somebody's existence. Yeah. Robin, thank you very much for this. Your your curiosity about people, your, your empathy, your willingness to start with where somebody is stuck uh, is magnificent uh, to listen to. And I'm thank you, sure that you're good at that. <laughs> thank you very much for participating. You are welcome. I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's really been rich and valuable for me too.